Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Recently, I came across an extraordinary and for me, shocking report by a past guest on this show, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. Uh, it's called Surprise Attack, ICBMs and the Real Nuclear Threat. It provides an excellent overview of, of nuclear war, past, present, and future. Uh, we don't like to think or even talk much about the possibilities of nuclear war, but they are real. Uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, communist China, and of course North Korea are implementing comprehensive programs to strengthen their ability to wage nuclear war. Meanwhile, as Dr. Pry puts it, on nuclear matters, the U.S. Uh, and Western strategic culture mostly thinks and acts in a state of denial and unreality. Dr. Peter Vincent Pry has vast experience in national security where to name just a few roles, he served as executive director of the EMP Task Force uh, on National and Homeland Security, chief advisor to the vice chairman of the House Armed Service Committee and the vice chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, and to the chairman of the terrorism panel. Uh, he was also executive director of the uh, United, Na United States Nuclear Strategy Forum. Uh, he got earlier in his career, he was an intelligence officer with the Central Intelligence Agency responsible for analyzing Soviet and Russian nuclear strategy. Peter, great to have you back, although I'm, I'm a little terrified of our topic. Uh, you've spent your life studying strategic matters, and in particular, uh, what uh, Russia has been doing and China has been doing in matters nuclear. Um, what what gave what what was the impetus for writing this report? Well, I'm very concerned that the Biden administration may ban unilaterally the U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is the uh, critical to the nuclear triad that we rely upon to to deter nuclear war. You know, the triad comprises ICBMs, our strategic bombers, and our ballistic missile submarines, and the uh, Biden administration anti-nuclear activists like Plowshares, Union of Concerned Scientists, Federation of American Scientists, they become extremely influential, more so than they have ever been in the past. They've become a, an important part of the Democrat Party's political base. And people from these organizations are being promoted into the Biden administration with their anti-nuclear views. Uh, some of the leaders of the Democrat Party, Adam Smith, who's the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, right now, and arguably, well, after the president and after the, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee is the third most important guy, arguably perhaps the second most important guy in our country when it comes to nuclear policy, and he wants to ban the ICBMs too. The uh, Biden administration has given our ICBMs a reprieve this year. You know, they're going to continue to fund this thing called the ground-based strategic deterrent, which is a replacement for the Man 3 ICBM, which has reached the end of its useful service life. You know, it can't be extended any, any, anymore. Uh, you know, but there's a nuclear posture review coming up in January, next January, you know, that's going to re-examine all these questions. And people contributing to that nuclear posture review are going to be a lot of these anti-nuclear activists. And it can provide political cover for the president to then ban ICBMs or to not provide a modernization replacement for the Man 3, which will be, in effect, the same thing as a ban on ICBMs. Now, the ICBMs, uh, we have 400 missile silos located mainly in the middle of the United States, and those are underground missiles that are aimed at uh, firing intercontinentally over to uh, Europe, Russia, China, whatever, in the in the instance of war. Is that is that an accurate description of ICBMs? Mostly, yeah. There's a 400 Minuteman three ICBMs that are deployed in our force, but and they are in hardened missile silos. They would have to attack with a nuclear weapon to destroy them, but they're not aimed at Russia and China. One of the things we have done to try to you know to try to persuade Russia and China that we're not uh, a a threat to them is we have detargeted our ICBMs. So they're not aimed at Russia and China. They're aimed at broad ocean areas, just in case, for example, there was an accidental launch. 
you know, that they would go into the sea and they would not strike another country. So the ICBMs are part of what, what's called the triad. Yes. And the other two pieces are strategic bombers and uh, submarines. That's right. Uh, what's the state of our strategic bombing uh, force now? Well, most people think, you know, that it's like the way it was in the Cold War, where we have bombers armed with nuclear weapons constantly on patrol in the air. But that hasn't been the case for, for, for decades. You know, uh, you know, after the Cold War, we grounded the bomber fleet. For a while, they were on strip alert, ready to take off on, on short notice. That situation doesn't exist. The bombers basically don't have nuclear weapons on them. They're not on strip alert. It would take three days to mobilize the strategic, strategic bomber force. And uh, we used to have over 40 SAC bases, 40 strategic bomber bases. Those have been reduced to three. So all of our strategic bombers are now concentrated on three bases. So most of us, unfortunately, get a lot of our ideas about this from Dr. Strangelove, the exactly. movie. And, you know, there's the, there's the image of Slim Pickens flying around in his B-52 with his cowboy hat on. That isn't happening anymore. It isn't happening anymore, no. We don't have bombers on day-to-day -day patrols like that anymore. It would take us three days to mobilize the bomber force. It's called generating the force. So yeah. we, we, you mentioned this in your title. We'll talk about it in, in depth later. But surprise attacks. So in the event of surprise, the bombers are not really ready to, to, uh, to come into action with any, with any alacrity. The bombers would be completely destroyed in a surprise attack. And even North Korea could do it because there's only three targets. Then the other piece, the third piece, are the nuclear submarines. And we have, what, 20 nuclear submarines, 16 nuclear submarines? No, we've uh, got 14. 14. You know, during the height of the Cold War, we used to have about 35 to 40, okay, which meant that we could have about a third of that force on patrol, about 12 to 14, constantly on patrol. Now we only have 14, which means that we, on a, on a daily basis, have about two or three of them on patrol in the Atlantic or Pacific. The rest of them... 10 submarines, 11 sometimes, you know, are in port where they could be destroyed in a surprise attack. Well, this seems... And there's, only two, there's also only two ports to attack. So even North Korea could do that, too. It takes only five weapons to destroy the bomber force, which is not alerted, and to take out two-thirds of the ballistic missile submarine fleet, you know, when it is not generated. Five weapons. North Korea could do that. North Korea and China could also oh, do of course. it, and Russia, Russia could, could do it, also China. do it. You know, even Iran could do it, even though they don't have nuclear weapons, because uh, the bombers are not in a hardened facility, and neither are the submarines. You know, uh, Iran, for example, has uh, the Club K missile from China, so it could turn any freighter into a potential missile launch platform and use anti-ship missiles, for example, to destroy those submarines in port. Uh, it could use similarly use missiles like that to go after the bomber bases and destroy the bombers where they are with conventional weapons. Well, the, uh, there's the talk about, I want to get your term right, about the, the nuclear balance or the, the arsenal we have. And one of the points you make is we've got a theoretical arsenal of, of 5,000 warheads or whatever compared to China's uh, number and Russia's number. Now, those, those, those headline numbers are not the real numbers. Those are not the real numbers. Those are the numbers the press usually cites you know, because those are the numbers that are usually put out by anti-nuclear groups like the Federation of American Scientists or the Union of Concerned Scientists because they might like to make it sound like the United States and Russia, uh, certainly the United States, has got a lot more nuclear weapons that are operational than it really has. Those are what are called stockpiled weapons. Those are the weapons in a stockpile. You know, in other words, we have something like 5,000 weapons in the nuclear stockpile, but those weapons are not operational. They're not on bomber, they're not available to bombers, they're not available to submarines, they're not on ICBMs. They're warehoused someplace, many of them waiting dismantlement. You know, many of them are, are, are too old, and uh, they're being used to keep the other nuclear weapons that are operational, operational. You know, most Americans don't realize that the nuclear weapons that are on our ICBMs, bombers, and submarines are older than the Reagan administration. Uh, they're the same weapons that Ronald Reagan built or before the Reagan administration. And these weapons are way past their design life. You know, they, they were, should have been retired a long time ago. And we keep them alive by patching them up and taking parts from the stockpile to keep uh, those nuclear weapons active. We really have, uh, oh, about uh, 
under the START Treaty, the new START Treaty, were permitted 1,550 strategic weapons, operational strategic weapons. And we have, we have less than that operation. We've got about 1,300 to 1,400 operational strategic weapons on our bombers, ICBMs. So the numbers that are actually available are much less than the stockpiled numbers. Well, if they've just been sitting there, how, long, how do we know they'll work? Well, that's a matter of great controversy. There's this thing called, uh, that was established during the Clinton administration, uh, you know, called the Nucle Nuclear Stockpile Stewardship Program. I wrote a report on this when I worked on the House Armed Services right, Committee. Right. And, and the late, great Floyd Spence, who was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, didn't want that. He didn't want the nucle Nuclear Stockpile Stewardship Program, science-based so-called, you know, because what it did is it ended nuclear testing. You see, Bill Clinton wanted us to sign on to the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and do no more nuclear testing. But in order to do that, they had to make a case, well, we can continue to maintain and have confidence in our nuclear deterrent, you know, by not testing them, but by having scientists look at the bombs and examine the bombs and do calculations and use computer models to certify that these nuclear weapons will, will, will still work. So that's what we've been doing for 30 years. It's kind of equivalent. Suppose you had, suppose we were talking about an airliner instead of a nuclear weapon. And suppose you had a, a Boeing 747, okay? And you said, well, I'm not going to fly that Boeing 747 for 30 or 40 years, but I'm going to have people who are smart engineers and engineers who didn't design the 747, mind you, because those people have passed away or, or are, in, are in retirement. But we'll have some smart kids, you know, with, uh, with their pocket calculators and computers and models of how a 747 is supposed to work you know, inspect the parts, never turn it on, never fly it for 30 or 40 years. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, we're going to certify to Congress that this thing will still fly based on this kind of scientific analysis. I would not get in that 747 and, and trust my life to it after it hadn't flown for 30 to 40 years. And I don't think any normal, intelligent person would do it. But that's what we're expecting with our nuclear weapons. And, and many of our best scientists, like Dr. John Foster, uh, uh, and, and Lowell Wood, uh, Dr. Foster, by the way, designed most of the nuclear weapons that are in our current missile inventory, have said, you know, this science-based stockpile stewardship thing doesn't work. You know, this is really dangerous. Every, every year that goes on decreases the confidence that these weapons will actually be safe and reliable and work. And people who have worked in the stockpile stewardship program, after they re retired from Los Alamos and Livermore, have written articles warning that, you know, we were in this program and, and we're concerned that the, the credibility of these weapons is decreasing. Now, to add the cherry on top to this story, it turns out last year the State Department, which is always the last one to admit when an arms control treaty is being violated, the State Department finally admitted last year that Russia and China have been violating the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty for 30 years. And they've been, they've been conducting low-yield testing all this time that we haven't been doing the testing. This has given them an enormous technological lead over us. We're basically 30 years behind Russia and China in developing new technology, advanced nuclear weapons. You're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Dr. Uh, uh, Peter Vincent Pry, and we're talking about, really, it sounds like the deplorable state of our nuclear arsenal and how we've uh, let things deteriorate over the last uh, three decades. And it seems like principally, principally because of ideological reasons, we've decided to uh, unilaterally disarm. Is that, is that a fair way to, to talk about uh, this? Yes, I think so. And, and it's a bipartisan fault, too, because this has happened across Republican and Democrat administrations. I think with this new administration, and with the Obama administration and this new administration, the Biden administration, have been worse on this. But for both parties, and the strategic culture in Washington and in, in, in America's whole among people who who tend to think about this is, well, nuclear war is unthinkable anyway. You know, we'll never have a nuclear war because it's unthinkable. You can't win a nuclear war. And therefore, you know, we can afford to neglect this area, except for people in STRATCOM and who are real specialists in this. Uh, 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 the, your average person in Washington who's involved in the national security community uh, thinks that way. You know, that's part of our strategic culture but it's not part of the strategic culture of our potential adversaries. You know, in their military doctrine, you know, they write about how to fight and win nuclear wars, you know. Uh, they don't buy in to the 
U.S. Western view that nuclear weapons are unusable, that they can only be used for deterrent. I mean, President Biden just yesterday, you know, had a public statement now with uh, Vladimir Putin saying, oh, a, a nuclear war can't be won and we must never have one in a, in a, you know, in a public statement. On the Russian side, that's a lie, uh, you know, because in the Russian military doctrine and strategic forces exercises that they constantly conduct and in which Vladimir Putin personally participates in launching forces, unlike on our side, uh, you know, uh, they, they play out games where they fight and win nuclear wars. So why, how did we get, come to this point? I mean, I, I, I must admit, until I read your report, I was in the category of, well, nuclear war is not going to happen. It's unthinkable. Everybody understands you can't win one. While they've also been, while they've been testing their weapons, they've also been developing new weapons, which yes. are a lot more uh, lethal, stealthy, uh, tactical almost than that we think of as the as the bombs that went off in uh, in World War II. That's right. They have a wide range of new weapons, as 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 do the Chinese, but especially the Russians, uh, that ranging from ultra low yield tactical nuclear weapons that might have a yield of of one kiloton. That's equivalent to a thousand tons of TNT. Okay, it's like one twentieth the power of the Hiroshima bomb uh, that produces that is pure fusion, and so it produces no fallout, and it could be used to, for example, to destroy a bridge or to take out an adversary's armored division, and then you could just roll your tanks right through that area through the blasted enemy lines. Things like uh, neutron weapons, ultra ultra low yield neutron weapons, which are designed for taking out armored units or would be great for the for anti aircraft in anti-space, you know, uh, uh, purposes. Uh, uh, X-radiation weapons, which is another way of uh, arming anti-ballistic missile systems. Uh, one of the ones that I find most worrisome is super EMP weapons. These are weapons designed basically to put out gamma rays. They can have a very low yield, but they put out extraordinarily powerful electromagnetic pulse fields that can cover a huge area and uh, fields that are more intense for example, 100,000 volts per meter uh, that are, are uh, exceed the hardening, the military hardening standard, which is 50,000 volts per meter on our side. So theoretically, and the EMP Commission warned about this, uh, you know, you could use a super EMP weapon, you know, to win a nuclear war, potentially with very few weapons, maybe even just one, you know, because it could fry our ICBMs in their silos, the bombers on their bases, the ballistic missile submarines, and cut off our means of communicating with the submarines at sea, the small number of submarines at sea, so that they couldn't receive emergency action messages, which are necessary for them to execute their forces. They need to get unlocking codes, or the missiles on the submarines are useless. Well, we hear that nobody can win a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. You disagree. Yes, not only and I disagree, but the Russians and Chinese disagree too. And you can tell by reading their, their military doctrine. Uh, and it should, it's really just a matter of common sense. You don't have to be a, a nuclear strategist to understand that. Uh, for example, you know, World War II is nuclear war. Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened during World War II, and we won that war. And, the, uh, and this establishes a principle that anybody should be able to understand that, that a nuclear state, a weapon, uh, nuclear weapon state, a state that has nuclear weapons, is clearly going to be able to defeat win decisively against any state that doesn't have nuclear weapons. And that's most of the world. Most of the world doesn't have nuclear weapons. And so that gives North Korea, China, Russia, Iran, I believe Iran already has nuclear weapons, but when they get nuclear weapons, they're, uh, you know... Well, well does, does, does China believe they could win a nuclear war against the United States? Yeah, I, I, think, I think they do. And uh, I, I think they think they, they, they could. And the, uh, uh, another aspect of winning a nuclear war that I would like to explore here, and because this is not another issue that isn't widely understood, is one of the things that's most attractive about nuclear weapons and makes them strategic weapons is you don't actually have to use them to win, okay? Uh, the late, great Colin Gray, who was one of the West's greatest strategic thinkers, argued, and I, I think correctly, that since the invention of nuclear weapons, uh, that every war that has ever been fought, either between the superpowers or between allies involving the superpowers, has been, in effect, a nuclear war. You know, because when military and political leaders engage in these wars, always looming in the background 
shaping the mental and psychological geography of the conduct of that war is the reality of nuclear weapons. And so they, they're, they're planning and what they do is greatly influenced by that. Well, that and, influenced our conduct of the Vietnam War. Sure. You know, Lyndon Johnson wouldn't invade North Korea, uh, excuse me, North Vietnam, yeah. uh, because he was afraid, as in the invasion of North Korea during the Korean War, it would bring in China and, uh, and get us into a nuclear war with China. And so we lost the Vietnam War, you know, due to, in part uh, to the nuclear deterrence of China. Uh, we managed to avoid both of the Berlin crises from becoming world wars because of our tactical nuclear weapons and the strategic weapons that we had. John F. Kennedy managed to keep the Cuban Missile Crisis from becoming a thermonuclear war, and he won the Cuban Missile Crisis because we had a five-to-one superiority over the Soviet Union at that time in ICBMs. You know, the uh, why has nobody done anything to, to uh, accept a, a economic sanctions against Russia, okay, for seizure of Crimea and for, in effect, seizing part of Ukraine? You know, even though we have given security guarantees to Ukraine, it's because they're a nuclear weapons state. And so we are deterred from pushing too hard or pushing back too much against Russia because they're a nuclear weapons state. So there, there are many cases you can go through, uh, you know, examples, historical precedents where the fact, the existence of nuclear weapons has, uh, has uh, shaped decisions and in effect people have won wars or gotten away with crises or engaged in aggressive behavior successfully because of nuclear weapons. You know, the, the put down by the Soviet Union of the Hungarian Revolution in the 1950s, uh, their put down of the Czech revolt in 1968. Why didn't we do anything? Why didn't we go in and help the Hungarians and the Czechs? Because we didn't want to get in a nuclear war with, with, with the Soviet Union. Our very victory in the Cold War, you know, they had a five to one superiority in tanks. Uh, if it was just a matter of conventional forces, the Soviet Union during most of the Cold War could have conquered NATO and gone to the English Channel. They didn't do it. Why? Because they were deterred by U.S. nuclear weapons. And in the end, our intelligent use of nuclear deterrence, our intelligent use of nuclear strategy enabled us to prevail and defeat the Soviet Union without it becoming a thermonuclear war, almost bloodlessly, you know, because they were crushed because communism didn't work. Yeah. And they were crushed under the burden of their own economy, but they, they didn't gant roll the dice on trying to reverse their verdict of history, you know, because of nuclear deterrence. And we won that. But we seem to have, as in so many cases with wars, we seem to have forgotten the lessons of why we won the Cold War and the role that nuclear weapons played in that. But they have learned, they have learned that, you know, the nuclear advantage, the the, the role that nuclear weapons played in a U.S. victory in the Cold War is something that they need to take advantage of in the new Cold War that we're currently prosecuting. And unfortunately, you know, we've, we're, we've allowed the strategic balance to get very much in their favor, very much in the favor of Russia, at least. And I, I think it's actually in the favor of, of China, too, because I think we're underestimating, grossly underestimating, the size and competency of the Chinese nuclear arsenal. Talk, well, talk about the, the virtual... Uh, Great Wall in China. Right, the underground Great Wall. Right, we didn't know about this for, for many years. And uh, uh, I think some of the best analysis on this doesn't come out of our intelligence community, uh, you know, which often produces, it has people who are, well, maybe I should, shouldn't get into beating up on my old, uh, on my old agency, but I, I do think that the process that happens in the it, old agency being the CIA. Right, right. We did a show a few weeks ago on, on a woke CIA. Oh, my goodness. God, which, what's that? Which, you know, is, which is a broke CIA. That's right. You know, I don't <laughs> know how we are going to be able to survive without a really competent intelligence community. Anyway, you know, I, I interrupt, but I want to get you continue. Well, the, one, one of the, one of the uh, great failings, I think, of, of intelligence community analysis and why they so often get things wrong is there is is that in the intelligence community culture, there's an insistence on a corporate view. They have to establish a corporate view. So you have to have a majority of analysts, for example, agree on an assessment. And in any organization, you know, you've got a few brilliant people, a lot of average people, and then a few stupid people. Okay? And when you put on and when you average it all out, you know, what you come out with is a mediocre assessment. You know, it's a middle-of-the-road kind of an assessment on, the, <clears throat> on those things. Uh, but the brilliant people 
they don't prevail, okay? It's a middle-of-the-road kind of an assessment. In the when you're dealing with independent analysts, however, uh, you know, there are brilliant people who get to say what they really think, and they usually tend to be right. At least I think the historical record shows that. You know, for, there was an, a, an experiment called the B-team experiment. You know, uh, Richard Pipes, for example, the Harvard expert on the Soviet Union and Russia, was a member of the B-team that was brought in uh, to assess during the Cold War whether the intelligence community was right about Russian military strategy and, and how they thought about things. Because, you know, the intelligence community was saying, well, you know, the Russians and the, the Soviets tend to think the way we do. You know, they believe in mutual assured destruction, they can't win a nuclear war, uh, and, uh, 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 you know, these people who were saying that were unread in the literature, I think, or they were in denial, and the B team demonstrated that they were wrong about this. And in the aftermath of the Cold War, when we got hold of the Soviet archives about, you know, what did they really think and what were they planning, it turned out the B team, you know, was right. Today, on the issue of China, there was a brilliant guy named Phil Carber who, uh, broke the story on the underground Great Wall and said, you know, when you look at the size of the Chinese nuclear arsenal, you know, we're saying they've only got 200 weapons. They could actually fit a ballistic missile force that could carry 3,000 weapons in the underground Great Wall, which, by the way, belongs to China's strategic rocket forces. They're, they're, it's part of their nuclear deterrent. Why do so, they have an underground So the underground Great Wall, Great Wall is, is part of their space force? Well, it's part of their nuclear... Okay. Well, nuclear, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Peter Pry, and we're talking about uh, the failure of our intelligence community to very often understand the nature of the true threat three faces, first with Russia and now with China. And we're learning about the virtual Great Wall, which, as I understand it, is 5,000 kilometers long, that's right. or 3,000 miles. I mean, that's extraordinary. What we've been able to verify, yes. We, we, what we don't know what we don't know, but we do know it's at least that big. <laughs> so we don't know. We didn't know about that. Now we knew about that because of an entrepreneurial independent analyst that, that, that found it out. The, our, our, where was our CIA on this one? Did they not see this? They weren't looking for it, you know, because during the Cold War, almost most of our the overwhelming amount of our uh, attention was focused on the Soviet Union. You know, China during the Cold War was a U.S. U.S. ally, and uh, uh, and there has also been a tendency in the intelligence community, which is a, a problem that exists today, I think, uh, to have so-called panda huggers, you know, in charge of uh, of the of the China desk. Uh, uh, they tend to take a very sympathetic view toward uh, toward China. We we saw this at the end of the Trump administration, where there was a, a great debate, you know, over over the nature of the threat posed by China, with the China analysts in the intelligence community trying to soften it down and, 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 and soften the assessments about how much of a threat China was to the United States. So coming swinging back to the ICBMs, because I wanted to get some context before we went into the, why it would be such a catastrophe to get rid of them. Three pieces of the triad, bombers, ICBMs, submarines, submarines, there are not that many out on the waters. They could be uh, really cut off with an EMP uh, event that would shut off their communication. We couldn't get to them. Bombers are sitting on the ground unarmed. Uh, but what people say about the ICBMs is they could be a hair trigger and that uh, the greatest danger is not Russian bolt but a U.S. blunder and that somehow these ICBMs sitting there ready to go and the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, which is anything, once something starts, both sides are, are going to be destroyed. All those things are, are part of this push right now to get rid of the ICBMs. Yes, that's right. The very virtue of the ICBMs, the fact that they are on such a high level of readiness, over 95% of those ICBMs, our Minuteman 3 ICBMs, are ready to go, uh, you know, in a few minutes, you know, three minutes after they get an emergency action message from the president, they can launch. And the reason that's necessary on a day-to-day -day basis is that they are, they are really our, our only defense against a surprise nuclear attack from the other side. They're intended to deter the other side making a surprise nuclear attack. You know, we try to deter them from launching this first strike, and it has worked so far all through the Cold War up until today, you know, because they know those ICBMs are ready to go. And can they beat us to the draw? You know, can they strike those ICBMs and take them out before we can launch them? You know, that's, that's the issue. 
Now, how much of a hair trigger is that? Well, we've gone, we've gone to extraordinary lengths, you know, to try to, uh, you know, I think it's really exaggerated the idea that the that our ICBMs pose this kind of a hair trigger threat to nuclear war. You know, first the United States, uh, our political leaders and and military leaders believe in nuclear deterrence, not nuclear war fighting, not striking first. We don't do nuclear Pearl Harbors. Okay? Our defensive, all our our our, our armaments all all defensive to deter, and theirs is offensive to strike. Yes, that's right. That's what uh, that's the doctrine, and I think it's reflected in this in the char characteristic of the forces. Uh, to go back to our Minuteman three, to just make a, a, yeah. a, a couple points about this. You know, as I mentioned earlier, our, our, our Minuteman three forces detargeted. It's not aimed on their missile silos and bomber bases. It's aimed on broad ocean areas. So in case there is some kind of a mistake, you know, the missiles would go into the ocean. Uh, but emergency action messages to launch missiles, you know, we go through a th threat conference. There's a, a, a you know, a, a process where we need dual phenomenology. You've got to have radar confirmation. You've got to have a satellite confirmation that the United States is under attack. That's why we have NORAD, you know, our, our, our best experts looking at an incoming threat to assess whether it, uh, the threat is real or not. Uh, if they, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, so we would not execute those forces lightly. Uh, moreover, we have downloaded, uh, the Minuteman used to be MIRVed. This is, it carried more than one warhead, had three warheads, okay? But we've demerved it so that uh, each warhead could attack a, a different independent target. MERV stands for multiple... Uh, multiple independently targetable reentry vehicle. Okay, so... And we deliberately downloaded it to one warhead. You know, that's not optimal for making a first strike because that means only one missile can only destroy one target, you know? And there are more strategic targets in Russia and China than there are Minuteman missiles to execute that first strike. But look at what the Russians and Chinese are doing. You know, they are... They have not followed our lead. Uh, uh, we have reasons to believe they've ch cheated on the detargeting agreement, by the way, and uh, and they have heavily MIRVed their ICBMs. Russia's newest ICBM, the DF-41, carries 10 MIRVed warheads, uh, and it's mobile. It's kind of equivalent to a mobile peacekeeper missile. And China's new ICBM, uh, called the Satan-2 by NATO, or the Sarmat by the Russians, uh, is capable of carrying up to 40 MIRV warheads. Why do you uh, heavily MIRV? Because one missile, you know, can take out, you know, many targets. You know, there's basically, oh, when you, you know, the 400 ICBM silos, three bomber bases, you know, there's less, a lot less than 500 strategic targets in the United States for a counterforce attack. And how many could North, North Korea reach? They could get the bomber bases and the submarine bases. They could get the bomber bases and submarine bases. They don't have the capability to take out our ICBMs yet. Yeah. Because they've only got about, well, 60 warheads. I think they've got more than that. But even my estimate, that's not enough to do that, unless they do a super EMP attack. It's possible, you know, because a super EMP... Quickly describe EMP. We did a show on it, but just... Right. Electromagnetic pulse. What that does, you explode something and it goes, it, it really shuts down all the electronic uh, communication devices. Right. This is a, 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 it's not detonating on a city. The weapon is detonated at high altitude. You know, for example, at 300 kilometers altitude, you could put an electromagnetic field over North America with a single weapon. And uh, if you can raise the intensity of that field high enough, it can exceed the military hardening standard, which is 50,000 volts per meter. You know, that's what we hardened our forces to. And the EMP commission, this isn't just my opinion, but gave testimony to Congress back in 2008 that North Korea has super EMP weapons. And um, because these weapons can generate extraordinarily powerful EMP fields, 100,000 volts per meter, you know, for example, they could attack each of the Minuteman wings, you know, with one of these. There's only six... Uh, 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 even during the Cold War, we only had six Minuteman wings. And, um, you know, if you put a field down on each of those wings, you know, you could potentially fry the electronics and the missiles, and the bombers are usually co-located with these things. And so potentially, possibly, it's conceivable North Korea could win a nuclear war against us by means of EMP attack, by disarming us, by win a nuclear war. I mean, make a disarming attack. They wouldn't be attacking our cities, but be, they'd be attacking our forces and disarming our forces. And how would we respond to that? Would we be able to respond? Maybe we wouldn't even be able to launch our ballistic missile submarines, the, the two or three of them that are at sea,
because they would be disconnected from emergency action messages. Let me, let me do some conventional wisdom here. Sure. Conventional wisdom was for forever, China was okay because we're helping Chinese, China become more democratic, we're helping them become wealthy, we're having them enter the, uh, the, the Western liberal world. Well, now in the last several years, particularly since Xi became so aggressive, it's now clear that that's not what they have in mind. The Chinese Communist Party is very aggressive and they have plans, particularly territorial plans with regard to Taiwan. Um, Russia, conventional wisdom, I thought, well, well, that's a, the Soviet Union fell, it's been a kleptocracy, Putin's a thug, but, but they've got no industrial capability to speak of and they're not modernizing their weapons, and so therefore we don't really have to worry about Russia. North Korea, yeah, it's run by a little little madman, and we don't have to worry about him because that's, and, and the capability they brag about is not real. I'm sitting here listening to Peter Pry, and I, with the sinking feeling, I'm realizing, no, wait a second, all three of these entities are serious threats. Yes, that's right. All three of those ent entities are potentially mortal threats, existential threats, far more serious than climate change is to the existence of well, the United States and, uh, <laughs> Climate change. you know, and, and, the, and, and the Western democracies. And uh, uh, the conventional wisdom, you know, we have always been disadvantaged when it comes to totalitarian states, when it comes to uh, weapons of mass destruction and particularly nuclear weapons. Uh, because of our strategic culture, and there's kind of no getting a, a, around that, the strategic culture of the Western democracies doesn't like to think about world wars, nuclear wars, end of the world. We're a culture of optimists. We believe tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. And anything that tends to contradict that comfortable assumption, we tend to want to deny it. And this was true even before the invention of nuclear weapons. You know, if you look at the thinking of the Western democracies, including the United States, before World War II, you know, you had people who were pacifists, who were just as aggressive, not against nuclear weapons, but against any weapons. You know, they were against the Western democracies arming up to be able to deter Hitler and Imperial Japan and Mussolini. You know, uh, you had, uh, uh, they believed that, uh, that World War I was caused by the merchants of death. Uh, uh, you know, but they believed that the weapons of mass destruction at the time that the machine gun and the invention of the strategic bomber, the conventional strategic bomber, would, would be the end of the world, you know, for everybody. Because World War I looked like the end of the world, you know, from the point of view of the Western democracies. There were so many casualties. And how could any rational person think about a World War II? That was the attitude, that World War II was unthinkable to 90% of the intellectuals and, and, and political leaders that lived in that interwar period. Only Winston Churchill and a handful of strategic experts who surrounded him saw what was coming. And, and the situation, I think, is analogous to today, where we want to blind ourselves and blinker ourselves and not think about nuclear war fighting, nuclear strategy. We want to deny. We want to say nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare is unthinkable. And, and there's an additional aspect to this that makes us particularly vulnerable, because the truth is that you know, nuclear weapons are antithetical to the fundamental philosophies of, of free societies. Our greatest value is to serve the people. The people are the most important, valuable thing. So weapons of mass destruction, like nuclear weapons, are, are really antithetical to our, our most fundamental values. We were always sort of fated to lose an arms race in nuclear weapons to adversaries who are not free systems, who, who are centralized totalitarian systems, and whose highest value is placed because they are totalitarian states, on, on being able to destroy their adversaries and control their adversaries and win with or without nuclear war. And I, I, would, I, I would say that we're actually engaged in a nuclear war right now with Russia and China and North Korea, and we're losing it. We're losing it at the diplomatic level because nuclear weapons, as Colin Gray observed, are used not... Part of their greatest value is to actually employ them as diplomatic tools for blackmail. That's how we won the Cold War. We didn't actually detonate a nuclear weapon against the Soviet Union, but we deterred them for long enough so that they collapsed, you know, from their own internal contradictions. You know, look what's happening in the, in the Pacific just against North Korea. You know, 
How credible is our, are our security guarantees to Japan, South Korea, the Philippines? How credible uh, are we winning against China in terms of this, uh, the South China Sea? You know, they have, in effect, annexed the South China Sea. We protest, we complain about it. We haven't done anything about it because they're a nuclear power. Uh, our, uh, uh, our, the whole the strategy here is, for example, for China and North Korea, is to make the risks of underwriting our security guarantees to our allies in the Pacific so dangerous, you know, that that uh, that they will lose faith that we would deliver on those security guarantees and that we might eventually withdraw from the Pacific. And indeed, it didn't get a lot of attention. But one of the uh, biggest pieces on the chessboard of the Pacific, you know, is that we had B-52 bombers based in Guam, you know, basically a wing of B-52 bombers that was a core of credibility for us. And, and we took them out because of the North Korean nuclear threat and pulled them back to, uh, I think it was Minot Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, the Air Force position we was... We pulled them back because we thought they were a target or we pulled them back because we didn't want to seem too aggressive? We pulled them back because we knew they were a target. North okay. Kim, in 2017, during the nuclear crisis under Trump, threatened to strike Guam. And, uh, and we knew the Chinese had the ability, too, to strike Guam. Why, why aren't we hearing more about this? I mean, there have got to be a lot of people like you that are close to this whole national security apparatus. And where, where are the voices? Why, why is this not being... In, in so many other areas, if you get into politics, there seem to be a blackout on things talking about things like January 6th or the election, but there seems to be a blackout on this kind of uh, news blackout on the, reporting this kind of risk. Yeah, I think it part, it's explainable in part by our, our, our strategic culture. You know, uh, you know, the left-wing mainstream media certainly is anti-nuclear on everything. They're always against <clears throat> any kind of a modernization. Well, they, the call, you, uh, they call you uh, the root of all evil. I'm reading the, <laughs> yes, that's the letter right. from the... Uh, head of the Physicians for Social Responsibility. Right. Yeah, people like me are the root of all evil because we won't give peace a chance by making a unilateral gesture uh, of, for example, banning our ICBMs. Seems to me like we've, you just described 30, 40 years of unilater unilateral yes. gestures. In that we've letter, been making them time after time after time. We, we have, we have. You know, starting with, our, with tactical nuclear weapons right across the board. In that letter I explained, you know, we gave peace a chance uh, after the end of the Cold this War. This is a letter back to Dr. Irwin, uh, whatever. Right. I don't want to mention the last <laughs> okay. But uh, But the, uh, you know, the presidential nuclear initiative. Right. Uh, uh, Russia and the United States agreed that we were going to dismantle our tactical nuclear weapons. We had 15,000 tactical nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and we've reduced the number to 180. Russia didn't do that. You know, they cheated on the presidential nuclear initiative. Now they have a, an at least 10 to 1 advantage in, in tactical nuclear weapons. Plus, they cheated on the comprehensive test ban treaty, as I noted before. We haven't tested in 30 years. They did. China and Russia both. And, uh, and now they have advanced technology, tactical and strategic weapons. We have no counterparts to them. Our inventory. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, you know, was supposed to banish, abolish a whole category of weapons, intermediate range nuclear uh, missiles. We dismantled our Pershing twos and our Glickums. You know, they no longer exist. Turns out that Russia cheated on that too, and they have a unilateral advantage in uh, in intermediate range nuclear forces. And they're probably cheating on the New START treaty. The State Department is always the last one to acknowledge when these arms control treaties are being violated. They are still contending that Russia is in compliance with uh, with the new with the New START treaty. But independent experts. You know, people whose judgment I trust most on these things assess that Russia probably is cheating on the New START treaty and, uh, and probably has a two-to-one advantage in long-range strategic nuclear weapons, at least over us. And, and, and it's not hard to see why you should draw that conclusion, because the verification provisions in the New START treaty are abysmal. You know, we really can't verify that treaty. Well, well after all of these series of... of uh... I guess, strategic blunders, tactical retreats, whatever, through the last three or four decades. You're saying we're now, though, at an even more, what's your phrase for the point in time we're in now with regard to the ICBMs? Oh, a, uh, I, I, I compare, liken it to the hinge of fate, you know, the, the decision we're making now about do we modernize the Minuteman 3, replace the Minuteman 3 with a, a new ICBM 
the ground-based strategic deterrent, which is the replacement for the Minuteman III. If we, if, uh, do we do that to keep the triad alive, to, to try to keep, sustain the credibility of the, of the triad of nuclear deterrence, which is what enabled us to prevail in the nuclear Cold War without having a World War III? Or are we going to be so foolish and blind that we're going to get rid of those 400 ICBMs and their hardened silos, which will make it possible for even North Korea to win a nuclear war against us by a surprise attack? What about the votes? Is this something that Congress votes on, or is this something that happens in the Defense Department? Is it, it, what's, the, what's the political process to the, towards this decision? There are votes that ha have to be taken, and uh, there's negotiations that are going to happen this summer between the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee. The House Armed Services Committee that has been chaired by Adam Smith, they want to ban ICBMs. They want to get rid of them or not fund the ground-based strategic deterrent, which is the same thing as eliminating our ICBM force because the Minuteman III is at the end of its service life. It can't continue and be a credible, credible deterrent. And this issue will be decided this summer. Now, I, I think we'll win this time, but only because the Biden administration, you know, has not come in on the side of the anti-nuclear forces in Congress and said, yeah, we're defunding the ground-based strategic deterrent. They've allowed the funding to be there. Still, who knows what's going to happen? The, the argument, the battle, the battle is going to go on this summer and negotiations are going to continue. My, uh, my concern is, is that, you know, there's going to be a nuclear posture review under the Biden administration in January. And they're bringing in all kinds of anti-nuclear people. January 2022. January 2022, a new okay. nuclear posture review. And they're bringing in all kinds of anti-nuclear people from Union of Concerned Scientists, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, who have senior positions in the nuclear enterprise who will no doubt inform and participate in the new nuclear posture review. And uh, I'm very concerned that the new nuclear posture review will give the Biden administration the political cover it wants and needs so that it can make this unilateral grand gesture that the uh, anti-nuclear forces want and say, well, we're going to ban abolish U.S. ICBMs and hope that China and Russia follow our leads, or we're not going to we're not going to fund the follow-on ICBM, the ground-based strategic deterrent, and we're going to extend the Minuteman III, which is another possible way of basically banning ICBMs while pretending to have a functional ICBM force. So, what should we do, uh, people, those of us listening and, and and watching? What what's our line of action here? I think people should, uh, you know, uh, reach out to their members of Congress and to their senators and, and, and say, you know, we want you on the right side of this. You know, our lives are at stake in this. The future of America and the Western democracies uh, are, are at stake. You know, do not uh, defund the ground-based strategic deterrent. Replace the Minuteman III with a, with a, with a new ICBM. Uh, I would like to even go beyond that. And... Uh, one of the things I recommend in the report, uh, you know, is that we finally realize Ronald Reagan's dream, uh, you know, because I too, I, I too have reservations. I don't, I break company with a lot of my nuclear hawk colleagues on how long can we go with, a, uh, with nuclear deterrence, okay, without getting into a nuclear war. You know, I think it's increasingly unstable because of the kinds of technologies that are being developed increasingly favor striking first and achieving surprise attack. Hypersonic warheads is just one example. Here are weapons that can basically evade our radars, greatly reduce our strategic warning time, maneuver so that they can't, uh, you know, so that the existing national missile defenses can intercept them and have extraordinary accuracy. So you can basically blow up a hardened target, you know, with very low yield. Uh, you know, this is, this is the dream that people who believe in nuclear war fighting and nuclear war and winning nuclear wars in Ch Russia and China, you know, have uh, have been have been waiting waiting for, and uh, uh, eventually, I'm afraid of Gus getting into a 1914 or 1940, 1939 type scenario where the temptation to strike us will be so great because mm -hmm. the advantages of the offense will be so great that Russia, China, or North Korea will find it irresistible. You know, the way to get out of the nuclear deterrence trap is not by disarming yourself and by making futile gestures, you know, by, of unilaterally disarming yourself. The way to do it, there is a way out. And Ronald Reagan had that, 
that, that vision. It's the way historically, you know, you can render military technologies obsolete by coming up with a better, more stable military technology. And Reagan's vision of a space-based missile shield, you know, to render nuclear missiles obsolete, you know, that's the way out. You know, uh, come up with a better system. And we did, actually. It was called Brilliant Pebbles. And it was ready for deployment during the Clinton administration. This was the fruit of Reagan's strategic defense initiative that the mainstream left-wing press never likes to talk about, you know, because they're also against missile defenses. So is the Physicians for Social Responsibility, by the way. They don't want us to defend ourselves or deploy missile defenses. But space-based missile defenses, you know, we still have great technological capabilities, I believe, still have an advantage over our, our, our adversaries. And this is the way of, of rendering mutual assured destruction obsolete. I talk about replacing it with a new strategic doctrine called, called strategic assured national existence or SANE. You know, the American people don't want to be avenged in the event of a nuclear war yeah. after our children and our cities are destroyed. They want to be protected. Right. You know, how can anyone be against, but they are, how can anyone be against a system that kills nuclear missiles and not people? And that's how we can tra could transition out of it. Reagan even wanted to share the technology, and I wouldn't be against that. Because if you get into a, de a strategic defensive arms race, all the sides become safer and more secure. It makes more and more obsolete the offensive strategies and offensive weapons that are currently putting us at such great peril. Peter, thank you. You've been watching The Bill Walton Show, and I've been talking with a serious man, uh, Dr. Vincent, uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, on a serious topic, which is nuclear warfare. And I think we, I've made some progress to understand what's at stake and what we can do about it. Peter, thanks for offering up uh, a solution. I'd like to have you back at some point, sometime, to get into this a little further to see where we can take it, because this is one of the most vital issues Americans uh, will face, much more important than a lot of the silly things we see in the headlines. So. Uh, Stay tuned to this and uh, future shows on this topic. And uh, Peter, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.